hope you'll take your Bibles and open to Mark chapter 14. Mark 14. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one near you. So I hope you'll take it and open it and follow along. There won't be any scripture on the screen today. So just follow along in the, the copy of the scriptures you have there. Mark 14. This is now our third week looking at the events of one night that changed the course of the world and eternity. It's a night that started with a meal. Jesus and his disciples gathered in an upper room. After that meal, it's a night that continued in a garden where Jesus wept and prayed. It's a night when the quietness of that garden was broken by a mob who came to arrest Jesus. A mob that was led by one of the 12, one who had betrayed Jesus. This morning we come back to the scriptures and we pick up in the same night. It's very, very late at this point, three, four in the morning. Jesus at this point is in the custody of those who want to kill him. And by the time the sun comes up, he will have been sentenced to death by Jewish leaders. It's an unbelievable night, and it's a story that most of you are familiar with. But what I start by considering this morning is this. Consider who this one is. The one who was betrayed, the one who was arrested, the one who is now in custody. I was thinking of John chapter 1, that first chapter of the Gospel of John. John says this about Jesus. He calls him the Word. He says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Jesus was in the beginning with God, and he says this. We sang it together already. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life. And life was the light of men. So we picture God in the beginning, Jesus there with the Father. And then John tells us this, the true light, speaking of Jesus, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. Now picture this, can we? God himself condescending to take on flesh He was in the world, and the world was made through him. And yet, the world did not know him. He says, he came unto his own, and his own people did not receive him. John says it clearly, Jesus is God, and yet he was rejected by men. Jesus is God, and yet as we come to our passage this morning, we have Jesus betrayed and arrested in the middle of the night. And now, on his way to a secretive, middle-of-the-night trial. A trial that was thrown together for the sole purpose, not of justice, but of sentencing him to death. And as we think about the mob that leads him and the tribunal that's gathered to hear the case, we see people created by God. And a people who claim to know God. And yet, as God in flesh stands in front of them, they are intent on killing him by whatever means possible. What's even more striking 
is that before the sentence of death, Jesus makes an unequivocal, that's a hard word, he makes a statement, a clear statement about who he is. He says, I am the son of God, and one day you will see me in all my power. He says that to men. I am God, and one day you will know for sure. And what's their response? Not awe or wonder. Not fear or respect. No, their response is more rage. In fact, when he says that, they have the ammunition they need to sentence him. It's a surreal scene. God in the flesh being sentenced by mere man, his own creation calling for his death. It's a travesty. And yet something we've seen over the past couple weeks is this, that in this scene we have wicked men doing as they pleased. And at the same time we have God Almighty ensuring that his will is done. Both things happening at the same time. This morning as we come to the text, what I hope you'll see is this. Two extremes. The wickedness of men as they plot the death of the Son of God and the goodness of God as he works out his plan for our salvation. And of course, we see the steadfastness of Christ. That's where we're headed. That's what we're going to see. And pretty early in the week, as I'm interacting with this text and thinking towards today, I could have told you really earlier in the week that we were going to see these things. The wickedness of men and the goodness of God. But I'll be honest with you that it wasn't towards until the end of the week that and I still had this question in my mind. Okay, we see the wickedness of men, those who want to kill Christ. We see the goodness of God working out his plan of salvation. The question is, what do we, what do, we do with that? How do we respond to that? Surely this should be more than a reminder of a historical event, right? And surely we are here for more than a theological discussion. We're here to hear the truth of Jesus and to have it impact our lives, to affect us. So the question is, what, what's here? How do we respond? Some weeks the answer to that question, because it's a question I ask every week, sometimes that question comes easier than other weeks. This week it seemed harder than maybe it should have been. But I consider this contrast between the wickedness of the accusers and the, one being a, the holiness of the one being accused. I couldn't help but consider that my heart is more like the accusers than the holy one being accused. And even this morning as we think about those solas of the Reformation, we consider this, that Apart from grace, we don't see him for who he is either. Apart from grace, we don't see him rightly and we don't honor him as God. Apart from grace, truth be told, I hate him and prefer what I want over what he wants. And yet, yet, church, we, we put ourselves in that category, right? The wicked who by our nature we hate him. 
That's what the Bible says about us. That's our inclination by nature. And yet, what does he do but go through steadfastly towards death for this purpose to show grace to us? The reason God himself allowed this travesty to happen was so that you could be forgiven. The reason Jesus didn't immediately stop at all and call judgment down on these men was because he came prepared to die for sinners. How do we respond? As we go through this passage, I hope you'll consider these two things. First, the depth of your own sin. This is a call for us to recognize who we are apart from Christ. It's a call to hate our sin. And if, as you probably will at some point, instinctively shake your head and wonder how anyone could do the things done, it should be a reminder for you to hate your sin all the more. Because in you is the same wicked inclination to dismiss God and to live for yourself. Second, it's a call for us to be in awe of the grace of God because even though we are those people, he went through with his death. He died so that we could be forgiven. What love, what grace, what mercy. It's an account, it's a truth about the wickedness of God and the grace of God. Excuse me, wow. The wickedness of men and the grace of God. And it should move us to gratitude, worship, and obedience. Mark chapter 14 We'll be in verses 53 to 65. I hope you'll follow along as I read. Hear the word of God. They led Jesus to the high priest. And all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes came together. And Peter followed them at a distance, right into the courtyard of the high priest. And Peter was sitting with the guards and warming himself at the fire. And the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death. But they found none. For many bore false witness against him, but their testimony did not agree. And some stood up and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands in three days, and I will build another not made with hands. Yet even about this testimony, there was not agreement. The high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, Have you no answer to make? But Jesus remained silent and made no answer. And again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? Jesus said this, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power, coming with the clouds of heaven. And the high priest tore his garments and said, What further witnesses do we need? You have heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death. Some began to spit on him and to cover his face, to strike him, saying, Prophesy. And the guards received him with blows. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. It's true. It's our final authority. And I pray that God would use his word to open our hearts and to draw us closer to him this morning. 
Before we jump into the text, I do want to acknowledge this, that there is a part of this text that we are not going to consider. There's a verse that I'm just going to skip over. It's verse 54. It's a verse about Peter. If you remember, earlier in chapter 14, Jesus told Peter that Peter was going to deny him. He was going to deny even knowing Jesus. And Peter said, there's no way. I will never deny you. Even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. Well, next week, we're going to see that Peter does, in fact, deny Christ. And what Mark's doing here is something we've seen over and over in the book of Mark, is that he puts things together in a certain way to draw our attention to certain things. And I think it's very intentional that the denial of Peter is announced, and then we see the denial of Peter over here, and even in this passage where we hear this true confession of Christ, we have this allusion to what's coming. We're going to talk about this more next week, but here's a preview. Next week, we'll consider that when under pressure, Jesus made a true confession. And when under pressure, Peter made a false confession. So we see the contrast. We'll save that for next week. Today, we're going to focus on the confession of Jesus and his trial. And something I already alluded to is that everything that's happening here, everything that's described here is shameful. And not just because of who we know Jesus to be, but just in general, this was not a traditional way of going about things. Remember when we paused last night, or man, I am struggling this morning. When we paused last week, it was the middle of the night, and when we unpaused this morning, it's still the middle of the night. And yet we have this arrest. And they don't take Jesus straight from the garden to a holding cell. And they don't take him and lock him up until a formal trial can be held. They don't even wait till the sun comes up, which all seems like normal and natural things to do, right? Maybe the arrest needs to be had in secret. Okay. But wouldn't everyone just go back to bed at that point? We can deal with this tomorrow. But no, what we see is they leave the garden. They go straight to the house of the high priest. They wake him up. It's time for a conviction. It's the middle of the night. It's a holiday week, no less. A time when nothing official was ever done. And yet here they are, arriving at the home of the high priests. And when they get there, we're told that all of the religious leaders come together. We're, see that in verse 53. They led Jesus to the high priest, and all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes come together. We've got these three groups of people, and I won't take time to describe all of them and their jobs the chief priests and the elders and the scribes, but they are all religious leaders. And there was 70 of them that formed a council called the Sanhedrin. And this was a council, and their job was to uphold the law of God and to rule in trials. So think of them as the Jewish Supreme Court. That people would, be, would come to them and the law of God would be open and a, a trial would be had. This is who Jesus has brought before. But even the time of day or time of night makes it clear that this council was not seeking to uphold justice, but to act unjustly. Middle of the night, a holy week, and yet this is when the trial is being held. And yet, what we see is that even the charges are convoluted. They're struggling to even find a reason to do what they want to do. 
Verse 55. The chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they found none. Many people bore false witness against him, but, but their testimonies didn't agree. Think about it. They've got the man they've been after. They have the Sanhedrin gathered. They're ready for a guilty verdict. They're ready to issue a sentence of death, and yet there's a breakdown. All they need are two witnesses who can both testify to things that are deserving of death, and it's over. And yet witness after witness comes, and they're not getting what they need. Think how frustrating this must have been for those 70 men. They had been plotting and planning for this. Now they're up in the middle of the night, ready to get it done, and they can't. Even at this point, we see the wickedness and the injustice of the situation. It, it's truly a witch hunt. Those who hate Jesus are scrambling to have enough evidence to call for his death. And we're not told all the charges that are brought. We, we could go back and guess based on problems they've had with Jesus in the past. We are told of one, we see in verse 57, that some stood up and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple that's made with hands, and in three days I will build another, not made with hands. Yet even about this testimony, there was not agreement. Now, if you've been with us through the study of Mark, this should sound familiar. We've heard Jesus say something like this before, haven't we? What's the accusation? This is it. The accusation is that Jesus threatened that he was going to destroy the temple in Jerusalem. Okay? This is the central place of worship. And the accusation is Jesus said he was going to destroy it. And to be clear, if he did do that, that would be a capital offense. You go back and read Jeremiah 26 when Jeremiah had prophesied the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple, and he went under trial for this very thing. It's a serious offense to claim to threaten a, a terrorist attack, right, against the temple of God. And I think we can see how someone may have gotten to this place of saying that Jesus said this, because he does say something kind of similar. What he does do is he does prophesy that there will come a time when the temple will be destroyed. And what we know now is that his prophecy came true in 70 AD, just 40 years after his death, the Romans came in and flattened it. See, what Jesus says always comes true. We see that even here. But there is more. There was a time when Jesus was speaking with some Jews, announcing the covenant and judgment of God, and they were pushing back. Jesus is announcing hard things, and they said, if these things are true, give us a sign. Okay? They ask for proof. This is John chapter 2, verse 19. Jesus answers them. He says this. Notice the differences between the accusation and what Jesus says here. He says, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews said, it's taken 46 years to build this temple, and you will raise it up in three days? So notice what's, what's happening. Jesus isn't saying that he's going to destroy the temple. He says... Destroy it, I'll rebuild it. And the Jews, understandably, believe that he's talking about the temple in Jerusalem. 
But here's what John clarifies. So we keep reading. He says, but Jesus was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the words that Jesus had spoken. So Jesus was using an illustration, right? He says, destroy this temple, and I will raise it up in three days. And John says, here's what he was saying. You kill me, I'll be raised again in three days. What's he's, what he's announcing is that there will be a day when the temple in Jerusalem will no longer be necessary. Because Jesus would become the final and perfect sacrifice, the only mediator between God and man. That's the story behind the accusation. It's extra. The bottom line is there was an accusation that Jesus said something, but that's not in fact what he said. And even as they come and they try to accuse him, they can't get two people who are on the same page. Everyone's heard it a little bit different, and even this charge cannot stand. And again, can you imagine how frustrated these men must be? You got me out of bed for this. I thought we were ready. I thought we had witnesses. I thought this was over. What are we doing? At this point, the high priest starts to take things into his own hands. Do you have the scene in your mind? This council of 70 led by the high priest, Jesus in the middle. One after one, witnesses are coming, making accusations, accusation after accusation after accusation, and none of them are validated. Yet Jesus sits there, and what does he do? He doesn't roll his eyes. He doesn't try to defend himself against every accusation. He's silent. At this point, the high priest stands up and takes an opportunity. He decides, as I try to read his mind, if I can get him talking, he will accuse himself. Verse 60, the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, have you no answer to make? What is this that all these people are testifying against you? You've heard accusation after accusation after accusation. And the high priest knows they can't do anything with any of them. But he's trying to get Jesus to talk. Defend yourself. Yet we see in verse 61 that Jesus remains silent and makes no answer. And I don't think we should misunderstand his silence. This is not Jesus pleading the fifth. He's not trying to play strategic games. No, he's submitting to the will of God. Remember in the hours leading up to this, Jesus had been in the garden where he prayed, not my will, but your will be done. Jesus, in a moment, could have changed everything. Yet he sits and he listens as his own creation stands before him and accuses him of wrong and accuses him of wrong and accuses him of wrong. The high priest is frustrated. Yet Jesus is submitting to the will of God and acting in fulfillment of the scriptures. Remember what the prophet Isaiah said? This was generations before Jesus was even born. Isaiah said this about Jesus. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that's before its shears is silent. So he opened not his mouth. So much Jesus could have said. Time after time, when he was with those making accusations, he put them in their place. 
He ended the conversation. He has the ability to do that. But in this case, Jesus sits. In fulfillment of the scriptures, he was silent. And the high priest, I think, is fuming. We have got to get this done. At this point, he cuts to the heart of the matter. Verse 61. Jesus remained silent and made no answer. Again, the high priest asks, here's the question. Here's the question. Are you the Christ, the son of the blessed? It's a big question and a question that if answered rightly would give them exactly what they need. If you've been with us through our study of Mark, you know this, that often people had begun to see Jesus rightly. Do you remember what he often did? He said, don't tell anybody. Don't tell anyone. Over and over, you're the Messiah. Don't tell anyone. Why? There was a timeline. Jesus knew one of two things would happen if this got out. One, if it was broadly proclaimed he is the Messiah, many would take him and exalt him as king. It's not time yet. On the other hand, if it's well known that he's claimed to be Messiah, he could have been put to death much earlier. It wasn't time yet. But now the question is asked, are you the Christ, the Son of God? Or Caiaphas says, Son of the Blessed. And there's discussion about, is he actually asking about the deity of Christ here? Some would say that even in this question from from Caiaphas, the high priest, he's simply asking, are you the Messiah? And remember that for many Jews, they didn't see Messiah as God. They saw Messiah as the promised one of God. So perhaps this isn't a question of the deity of Jesus. But what we're going to see is that Jesus answers it and leaves no doubt, both about the question of Messiah and God. Before we get there, just consider this. Up to this point, on their own, they could not get what they needed. Right? He remained silent. They can't get it together. Consider this. That Jesus willingly gave them what they needed. Verse 62. Jesus answers Caiaphas and says, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds. Friends, if you are inclined to think that Jesus is a helpless victim, someone who's being overpowered by an unjust system, don't miss this. Caiaphas asks Jesus who he is, and Jesus says it plainly, I am the long-awaited Messiah. I am the Son of Man. Son of Man may not mean much to you, For them, this set off alarms. Son of man was a title used by the prophet Daniel. Daniel chapter 7. Listen to what Daniel says about the son of man. Daniel says, I saw in the night visions and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. He came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him, to the son of man was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples and nations and languages should serve him. And his dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. What's Jesus claiming when he calls himself the son of man? He's claiming, I was with the father, and I will be given power over everything. 
And he could have just stopped there and left them to put the pieces together. But he actually goes forward and says it himself. You will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power coming with the clouds of heaven. Can I paraphrase what he's saying? He's saying, I'm God. I am the one with all the authority. I will reign over all and you will see it. You will see me reigning over everything. How's that for a climax? These men have been fumbling and stumbling trying to put together a charge. And if Jesus had remained silent, they may not have ever had enough. But when asked directly, Jesus gives a true confession and a confession that he knows will be used to put him to death. He announces, I am God and I will rule over all. With that in mind, here's a small rabbit trail. If you like rabbit trails, maybe you'll come with me. That there's a lot of people who say, I believe in Jesus. And yet they don't believe in Jesus the way we've been talking about today. They would say, I believe there was a man named Jesus who was a great teacher. I believe there was a historic man named Jesus and he was a a religious leader and a moral example. Common things. Maybe you've thought as much yourself. But the reality is, is that Jesus claimed much more for himself than teacher or moral example. Jesus says, despite what some would try to convince us of, he says very clearly, I'm God, and I will rule over all. And this is why C.S. Lewis made the famous argument that it's not an option to simply call Jesus a great moral teacher. Because good teachers and good examples, they don't claim to be God. And when you take that step, you're no longer just a good teacher. Lewis says you're one of three things. You're a liar or you're a lunatic or you are in fact Lord over all. I'll just read what Lewis says. This is in his book, Mere Christianity. He says, you must make the choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or yes, yet he was a madman or something much worse. So you can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon. Or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. And he did not intend to. Do you understand the argument here? We can't go halfway and say Jesus was a good man a good teacher. Jesus was a man who claimed to be God and died for that confession. We see that here in Mark 14. Jesus makes a true announcement of his deity. And I just want to sit with that for a minute. It takes us back to where we started this morning. At the heart of what we see here is the true identity of the one on trial. God, very God, creator, standard, the one who holds all things together. The one who's going to come on the last day is the judge of the living and the dead. And yet now there are men who have arrested him and are going to all kinds of lengths to accuse him. A sneaky trial, a middle of the night hearing, trying to piece together whatever charge would reach their desired end. What a contrast. God himself accused by wicked, corrupt men. 
and yet he's not a victim of an unjust system. Sure, the arrest was sneaky and the secretive trial was shady, but Jesus never ceased to be the one in control. After all, this is why he came. He had announced it. This is another prophecy being fulfilled. Jesus had told his disciples just weeks earlier, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And yet after three days, rise again. This was the plan. Jesus came to die. And these wicked men are carrying out the plan just as God had announced. And when they knew they couldn't bring any charge against him, he gave them one. He came unto his own and his own people did not receive him. We see the reaction of Caiaphas in verse 63. Jesus has made this confession, true confession. We're told in verse 63 that Caiaphas, the high priest, tore his garments and said, what further witnesses do we need? You have heard his blasphemy. Now to tear one's clothes, it's a sign of great emotion. We see it with Job when he loses everything. So he tears his garments and he grieves. In this case, I think the emotion being shown by the ripping of the clothes is anger. He doesn't see Jesus for who he is. He sees a man who's committed bold and unfiltered blasphemy. And of course, that's exactly what he wanted. It gives him the charge he needs. And the Sanhedrin responds with the sentence they've been desiring. Verse 64, he asks what their decision is and they all condemned him as deserving death. And they can justify this because they're there to uphold the law, yes? And Leviticus chapter 24, we're told, whoever blasphemes the name of the Lord shall be put to death. So here they are, just good, upright men, upholding the law of God. But of course, what we know is they're actually killing the lawgiver. They're fulfilling the plan of God for our salvation. They're initiating the greatest travesty in all of history, the murder of the Son of God, and also bringing to pass the greatest act of love in all of history, the sacrificial death of Christ. And now we come back to the question that I had to wrestle with this week. How do we respond? First, I believe this is a call for us to recognize who we are apart from him. And we can see that in the faces of those who accused him and sentenced him. To see those who brought these accusations should remind us of our own hearts that apart from his grace, we won't see him for who he is. Apart from his grace, we hate him and want nothing to do with him. Through our sin, we've all rejected him. In our hearts, we've all hated him. With our actions, we've denied him. You think, no, I don't think I have. We all worship things more than we worship God. What we see in these men, we should see a measure of ourselves. And any instinct we have to shake our heads at them should remind us of our own sin and our own hearts. And any judgment we feel like they deserve, we should know we deserve the same. And yet, this is why Jesus was doing what he was doing. He wasn't a victim. He was dying as a savior, a substitute. It's unbelievable, and yet this is what he did. How could it be that the God, who by nature we hate and rebel against, 
would die so that you can be forgiven of your sins. God himself allowed sinful men to condemn him for the sake of our salvation. God's will was being accomplished through them. And we have not yet seen the length or the breadth of their wickedness. We get a small picture in verse 65. Some began to spit on him and cover his face and to strike him saying, prophesy. It's a short verse, but there's a lot of cruelty packed in those words. I wonder if you ever spit in someone's face. Probably not, and if you have, it's probably a rare occasion because we all know what a hateful act that is. Doesn't hurt much, but it's powerful. Here are men spitting in the face of God. Mark's version is the Cliff Notes version. We could go to Matthew and get a, a bigger picture. He says they covered his face. Here's what happened. They blindfolded him, and then they would hit him, and then they would say, if you're God, then tell us who hit you. If you know all things, who did this? Right? Prophesy. They mocked him. What a cruel scene. And yet it's a fulfillment of everything Jesus had said would happen. Mark chapter 10, verse 33. Jesus tells his disciples, we're going to Jerusalem. And the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn me to death. And I will be delivered over to the Gentiles. And they will mock me and spit on me and flog me and kill me. And after three days, I will rise again. It's what Isaiah had prophesied generations before. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. All through this account, we see that what happened to Jesus is exactly what the scriptures foretold and Jesus himself said would happen. And we also have an announcement of future events. And we're going to end. I just want to go back for just a second. We're almost done to verse 62 and consider what Jesus tells us about the future. This was his confession. I am and you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. It was an allusion to Daniel 7 and it's a prophecy of a day that still has not yet come. What we see is that everything Jesus says comes to pass. He prophesied the trial. He prophesied the arrest. He prophesied the suffering. He also prophesied that a day will come when everyone's going to see him for who he really is. This morning we've seen the trial and his condemnation. And maybe you've had that picture in your mind, but that's not the picture I necessarily want to leave you with this morning. The picture I want to leave you with this morning is the picture of Jesus coming in the clouds with all power and all authority. And on that day, it will be both a fearful and glorious thing. Fearful because on that day when Jesus comes, we will all see him for who he really is. And on that day, we're told he will judge all men for their sin. And that should engender fear. Yet all who have repented of their sins and trusted in him 
we're told, will be saved. So the question is, where are you? This day will come when all will see Jesus for who he is. The question is, will you be among those who are judged or those who are saved? Can I give you some hope? Even if you've sinned as egregiously as those who spit on him and mocked him, you can still be saved. Because our hearts are all the same. If we repent of our sins and trust that he died on our behalf, we'll be saved. And if you've not done that, I would love to talk to you more about what it means to have a right relationship with God through Christ. Many, if not most of us, have received him. And the reality of that future day should change the way we live today. Should be a source of hope because we know that even on our worst days, We can look forward to the day the King of Kings will return and make all things right. No more tears, no more suffering, no more pain. That day is coming. Take heart. It should motivate us to live obedient lives. The King is coming. We will see him. Should we not live for him today? It should propel us to speak, to proclaim to others the King is coming. Will you be judged or saved? This morning we've seen Jesus in all his suffering and in his glory. I pray that these visions of Jesus would strengthen you and encourage you and give you hope for the week to come. I believe that's possible. I said earlier, I hope this is more than a historical recounting more than a theological this should matter for us today there is a god he is overall forgiveness is available and he's coming again to see this should change the way we see our lives our week our days